0: Good morning from Washington DC, thank you for joining us this morning for our discussion about supply chains between the United States and China. My name is Paul Kincaid, I'm the Director of Congressional Outreach for FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. We are pleased that you could join us this morning to learn more about the implications for bilateral relations between the two largest economies in the world. We're joined this morning by a wonderful panel of experts who will help us better understand where we stand today and what potential changes our nation and our world may see in the future. I'm pleased to welcome our moderator today, Marty Gold from Capitol Council, who has worked with FMC over the past several years to help our stakeholders and our congressional family better understand the Indo-Pacific region, and particularly the People's Republic of China. Marty will introduce you to our panel today, and then lead a discussion that we hope will both be intriguing and informative. Marty, the floor is yours.
1: Uh, thank you very much, Paul, and good morning, or good
0: evening, everybody, depending on where in the world you are.
1: Uh, I'm very pleased. Uh, to participate in this discussion. I want to thank in the first place the United States Association of Former Members of Congress for helping to organize this call. Uh, We have worked very closely with the FMC for a number of years on a great number of matters, but on nothing more prominently than China policy, which, of course, is the subject this morning. I also want to thank the China-United States Exchange Foundation, which is based in Hong Kong, Uh, I have worked uh, personally with uh, CUSIP for a decade, uh, having taken a a number of uh, former member of Congress delegations to China, both Senate and House, now a dozen in overall number, uh, and we would have had another one in April of this year, but for the coronavirus, and so we're winding up having discussions uh, virtually that we would have otherwise had in person. The concept of this is uh, we have three speakers, Ambassador Tim Romer, Dr. Charles from former representative from Louisiana, and Dr. Lawrence Lau uh, from Hong Kong. And, uh, each of them is going to say uh, some brief remarks after I uh, make introductions, and then um, after that there will be a, a series of questions. So in any case, uh, just to introduce, uh, Ambassador Tim Romer, served in the U.S. House of Representatives as a Democrat from Indiana for six terms between 1991 and 2003. Uh, He was a leader on intelligence and national security issues, as well as on education policy. In his final term, he helped to write the legislation which established the 9-11 Commission, and then he served uh, later as a distinguished member of that commission. Uh, Subsequently, by appointment uh, of President Barack Obama, Uh, Tim served uh, as uh, the United States Ambassador to India between 2009 and 2011, and under the sponsorship of the China-United States Exchange Foundation, he visited China and former member delegations in 2014 and 2016. Charles Bustani served uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives also for 12 years, uh, between uh, 2005 and 2017. Uh, this followed a career in thoracic and cardiovascular surgery. Uh, Dr. Bastani in the Congress uh, served uh, on the Committee on Ways and Means, where he emphasized trade and tax policy issues. While he was in the House, Dr. Bastani also chaired the House Working Group on China, along with Congressman Rick Larson of Washington State And as well, under QSEF sponsorship, Dr. Bostani visited China in 2018 in a delegation of former members of the U.S. House. Uh, Dr. Bao is a graduate of Stanford University and the University of California at Berkeley. He served for many, many years on the faculty of the Department of Economics at Stanford, as well as on the faculty of the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He also holds six honorary doctorates. Dr. Lau uh, is an esteemed economist. He is the author of seven books and nearly 200 articles on economic issues. Uh, He has had a broad variety of positions, both in the past and in the present, which, if I recited them all, would take this entire hour. But I can say that he has served on the National Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress. He is also a governor of the China-United States Exchange Foundation. Just one word of introduction here. Uh, Writing yesterday for the Council on Foreign Relations, Christopher Hill, who is the former Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs, made the following statement. The Chinese have a well-deserved reputation for thinking ahead, and what they see ahead is a world increasingly skeptical of China, one that, for starters, wants to shorten its supply lines so as not to have in place overseas orders for such desperately needed goods as personal protection equipment growing ranks of severe critics of china including those within the white house have talked about decoupling from the chinese economy as a solution to the economic woes of the united states as if the cure for economic transition is to cut back on trade with one of the world's most formidable manufacturing centers now that dream has a chance to become at least a partial reality as the pandemic has greatly expanded the scope of strategic needs and weaken the argument for free trade. China is aware of such sentiments, which are widespread among its trading partners and of the fact that the pandemic is bringing them closer to realization. So with that as a, as a foundation for this discussion, let me ask uh, Tim and then Charles and then uh, Dr. Lau to make uh, brief comments and then we can open this to questions.
2: All right. Thank you, Marty. Um, Pleasure to be with you and to travel to China several times with you. I think as recently I was just over there in 2019 um, on a track two dialogue between the United States and China. And uh, Marty, uh, you could actually uh, be uh, dominating this panel on the other side of this. And we're lucky to have you as moderator Uh, Thank you again, Paul Kincaid and the former members uh, association. They do great work uh, across the board in Washington to uh, get uh, exciting uh, day-by-day analysis of different uh, key issues going on domestically and internationally. And I'm happy to be part of another one of these uh, panel discussions uh, joining, uh, with my friend, uh, and, uh, former colleague, uh, doctor, uh, and congressman, uh, Charles Zistani. Uh, Charles, always, uh, pleasure to be with you. Look forward to hearing your comments today as always as somebody very informed on this. And Professor Lau, uh, we welcome you and, uh, thank you for taking the time. You probably, uh, from the West Coast, uh, have, uh, the most difficult job here. <laughs> Uh even uh, uh, getting on the phone is a challenge if you're calling from California. Um, so uh, thank you for joining us. As we talk today, uh, it's not a surprise that President Trump is tweeting about China uh, as we speak here this morning at a little bit after 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, China is very much in the news these days, not only the topic we'll talk about uh, with the supply chain uh issues uh uh we're talking about that europe has brought up their supply chains and done an analysis of that uh, the world is talking about this issue but we're also talking about um particularly in the united states and the think tank community and the political community with an election coming up we're talking about uh, divergent superpowers you know where to go next between the united states china relationship this relationship uh has been uh, broken for several years uh, previous to the Trump administration, and uh, the Obama administration was carefully analyzing and trying to get this balance right. Uh, We've seen South China Sea become more and more of a volatile issue, especially in the last couple months. Uh, Australia has a dust-up with China right now over the coronavirus and their level of cooperation and dependence on China. Uh, even the retirement portfolio of uh, federal uh, employees and service members with $557 billion to invest, there's a current debate with the Trump administration about whether or not uh, a portion of that uh, retirement fund should be invested internationally and in China. And we're seeing spying and cyber allegations between the United States and China uh, peak up and become more and more of a um, volatile point in uh, of the relationship. And finally, uh, we had uh, Ambassador Lighthizer talk to his counterpart last Friday about uh, phase one of the trade agreement and whether the economic part of that uh, uh, trade and China buying uh, farm goods and other products uh, can be um, uh, delivered as promised in this volatile economy. So, uh, you know, to, to kind of Look at the overall U.S.-China relationship um, with the supply chain issue being uh, now a key part of it. American interests have diverged on a broad set of uh, philosophical national security and ideological issues with China. It used to be that the U.S. businesses and the economic uh, issues were the glue in the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, oftentimes deflecting some of the the larger political or ideological differences. GM now sells more cars in China than the U.S. There are 370,000 Chinese students in America. Issues like that uh, kept that relationship moving in a pretty steady direction. Uh, These issues were the glue. Now uh, we're seeing the glue uh, dissipate and – These other issues and ideological issues are more dominant. Uh, Now the supply chain issue is one of the key issues. Uh, The coronavirus has highlighted and exacerbated that issue. Uh, Countries, including the United States, but also the European Union, uh, have seen their dependence, um, both from national security points of view, but also pharmaceutical issues. Could they get masks quicker? Could they get pharmaceutical product quicker quicker, Uh, Is there a a, a keener business interest in the resilience of these supply chains being located outside of just one key point in in China or Asia? Uh, How are businesses going to realign this? And Congress is now introducing legislation along these lines. Um, The the pharmaceutical national security issues uh, have overtaken some of these other issues as Creating U.S. jobs, a need for change, and as I said before, the business reliance uh, and resilience issues. We're managing this relationship. Uh, I think the, the Trump administration uh, vitally needs an overreaching uh, strategy rather than kind of a day-to-day uh, reaction to China. Uh, will this relationship be defined by hostility and constant attacks, one against the other, Or will we be able to put forward a strategic framework with some kind of managed cooperation, uh, identify specific issues where we can continue to have some glue in the relationship, whether they be on, you know, climate issues or healthcare issues, higher education issues, uh, you know, the the kinds of things, uh, that can keep the relationship on a steady and cooperative track going forward, with guardrails. Uh, as we do have disagreements over some of these other key national security issues, which are increasingly inevitable, but they're managed uh, in a overall strategic relationship. And decoupling does not become, you know, the the key word by China hawks, as we've seen in this administration. Uh, We need an alternative to the decoupling, and so far uh, we have not seen that emerge in the Trump years. So I look forward to the questions and the opportunity to engage with my distinguished colleagues on the panel, and uh, once again thank the former members Association for hosting
3: us this morning. Uh,
1: Thank you, Tim. Uh, Charles, would you go ahead, please?
3: Uh, Thank you, Marty. It's a pleasure to join you and my friend, Ambassador Tim Romer, and Dr. Lau and this important discussion. Um, obviously, we're focusing on some major issues, uh, the future of China, U.S.-China relations, uh, the future direction and trend lines for trade policy, which, are, uh, which really comprise a major driver of economic prosperity. How, how does all this fit into uh, national security and the convergence of this argument all around supply chains? I think it's useful to frame uh, frame the argument by looking sort of back where we were prior to COVID-19, prior to the trade war, uh, and the status of what was going on with the global economy and U.S.-China relations. Then briefly touch on the, the impact of the trade war and uh, the rise of economic populism or economic nationalism, and then, then we can explore some of the issues related to COVID-19. In looking back, if you go back and, and uh, to the end of the Cold War, um, there was this great optimism about trade, investment, globalization, and I just read a, a recent study uh, that was put forth by the IMF uh, that looked at trade over a 20-year period from 1993 to 2013, and a couple of key points um come out in this that really highlight uh the importance of trade policy and how it drives investment and so forth uh one point uh that the imf found was that a 75 percent increase in trade uh, that occurred between 1993 and 2013 um was due to the growth of supply chains these are these basically these supply chains emerged they became much more complex uh much more extended, they're opaque, they're proprietary, um, and they're now part of major global production networks with a lot of value, intellectual property uh, embedded in these. This all emerged over that 20-year period. As a result of the growth of these supply chains, uh, trade value rose fivefold during the 20 years that um, this, this study looked at. And so one can conclude that the growth and development of supply chains was a major driver of global economic expansion and prosperity uh, during that 20-year period. And one could argue that those trend lines continued uh, up until the end of 2016 in many respects. Um, Secondly, when China joined the WTO, there was tremendous promise uh, and expectation that China would reform as it integrated into the global economy and um much of this was driven by business uh, US business community optimism and so forth but what has happened since the WTO um accession of China we've seen a mounting level of frustration uh, that has grown whether it's uh, the business community with concerns about non-market behavior uh, intellectual property theft, forced technology transfers, unfair subsidies, and so forth. I think a lot of these things, um, have just sort of built over time. And the Trump administration took advantage of this growing alignment of, of negativity, uh, that, that was emerging over the period of time from WTO accession until the end of 2016 when the Trump administration came in actually early in 2017. It's quite interesting to see that Pew polling at the end of uh, uh, 2019 revealed the worst public perception of China ever recorded uh, by Americans, Um, and and there were a wide range of issues, both on the security and economic front, that were driving that. And in fact, uh, even more recent Pew polling uh, that came out uh, shows a worsening trend, um, and I think this is an alignment of public opinion, the business community writ large, uh, other stakeholders, uh, politicians, both parties, which is going to fuel a, a lot of anti-China rhetoric going into the election. Uh, in terms of the impact of the trade war, uh, from January 1st, 2017 to November 2019, um There's a study done by Global Trade Alerts, uh, which is under the auspices of the Center for uh, Economic Policy Research in London. They found that uh, 2,723 new trade disruptions or distortions occurred with a a negative cumulative effect on world trade of 40%. And 23% of all of that came from U.S.-China friction and the trade war. So, this is it, further acceleration of the problems that were accruing over time. The question is, where do we go from here? I think COVID-19 has unmasked a number of vulnerabilities uh, for countries around the world with regard to supply chains and has provoked a significant rethinking of what to do. The question is, what kind of policies come into place with respect to supply chains and trade policy? Um, are these policies are uh, going to be blunt instruments that are very disruptive to supply chains which could hurt US uh, US uh, economic prosperity uh, global prosperity uh, and further damage US China relations how do we how do we balance the, the need to meet national security requirements uh, while maintaining maximizing and maximizing economic growth and opportunity through trade policy I guess the question is what policy tools are used, will they be just blunt instruments that disrupt global value chains and supply chains, uh, much to the detriment of the global economy and the U.S. economy, or will they be more uh, thoughtful, targeted uses of of, um, economic statecraft that help build resiliency in the supply chains, redundancies, so that, um, that economic prosperity is preserved to the widest extent? While national security measures are, are taken into account, whether uh, that comes under the use of um, you know targeted measures uh, such as investment screening, uh, maybe targeted export control measures uh, when there's not just u s national interest involved but broader interest involved um, among market economies that are democratic, uh, all of this could be viewed in, as a way of looking at how do we provoke China into considering real reforms uh, and aligning and integrating uh, with rules and norms expected uh, that were expected under WTO accession. That means mounting aggregate leverage on China uh, with allies and taking a, a coordinated effort on targeted, investment screening and export control measures and perhaps other measures to keep this pressure on China uh, so that whatever the eventuality is um, whether it's further separation of our economies to protect the liberal economic order and prosperity and national security or do we uh, add leaving off ramps for China if reform measures and benchmarks are reached I think that's the, that's the long-term strategy that needs to be in place. The question is, as Tim put it earlier, and I agree with him, will Congress be reactive or think strategically along with the administration? That's going to be the key uh, imperative going forward for the United States, and I'll stop there.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Charles. Uh, Dr. Lau? Uh,
4: thank you, Marty. Thank you very much. Ambassador Romer, Congressman Chani. It's an honor to participate in this dialogue. Uh, I'm actually calling from Hong Kong, (laughs) not from the West Coast. (laughs) Anyway, to begin with, I want to make sure very clear that I speak solely in my own personal capacity. Um, First of all, I want to say that economic decoupling is actually not necessarily bad. However, the requisite to decoupling, the existence of a second source, you know, when, we, when we worry about supply chains, we actually worry about monopolistic supply chain. Okay? So the, the existence of a second source advanced monopolization, reduces monopoly power, at least to a more stable and more competitive world economy for the benefit of all consumers, wherever they may be. It also removes the concern of being over-dependent on any single country. Geographical diversification of supply and second sourcing, I believe, are inevitable. It's too risky. It depends solely on a single supplier, even if it is located in your most friendly allied country. Unforeseen events that disrupt critical supplies can happen, not just pandemics, but natural disasters such as earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, and tsunamis, and also man-made disasters such as bankruptcies, fires, nuclear disasters, such as Three Mile Island, and Fukushima, not to mention embargoes, trade wars, and other geopolitical conflict and disputes. It is not only the U.S. that would like to shift supply chains out of China. China would also like to shift some supply chains out of the U.S. It is the only way to ensure, protect against the risks of unforeseen disruption. Having a second source, however, is not the same as trying to achieve total self-sufficiency. If you have a second source in a third country, which is often a possibility, it is in many cases good enough. Is there a cost to decoupling or second sourcing? Of course there is. Insurance is never free, but there are also benefits. The obvious one is to be free of dependence on a single supplier or country whose interests may differ from yours. The second is the reduction of monopoly power, and monopoly rents. Think of a world with only Boeing but no Airbus, or vice versa. Where would we be today? For another example, consider how the influence of Amazon can be reduced. This is something that President Trump would probably like to see. But the simple answer is let Alibaba enter the U.S. market. This is also true of China. China should also let Amazon enter the Chinese market. And both the Chinese and U.S. consumers and suppliers will be much better off with competition between Alibaba and Amazon in their markets. Second sourcing is really one way to ensure adequate supplies, of critical commodities and products. Maintaining a stockpile is another Way to do that. For example, the U.S. has maintained a strategic petroleum reserve since 1975. The storage capacity goes to approximately 10% of the total annual U.S. oil consumption, but a much larger percentage, around 50% of U.S. annual oil imports. But how much supply is it How much should China rely on the U.S. for its pork and soybean? How much should The U.S. rely on Chinese production, face masks, generic trucks. Both sides must be comfortable enough that their respective national interests are not threatened by the over-dependent. Appropriate geographical diversification suppliers can solve the problem. Supply chain legislation should try to avoid the creation of state-sanctioned monopolies in the country itself but what they should do to make sure that, you know, you are protected against, um, you know, unexpected disruptions. Let me stop here.
1: Thank you very, very much, Dr. Lau. Um, Then let me uh, raise a few questions, and uh, I'm going to start with uh, Congressman Bustani, but if anybody else, you know, wants to respond to all of this, And please do, and then we'll go on to the question that follows it. Uh, All right. So, uh, Charles, uh, notwithstanding a stable degree of U.S. foreign direct investment in China, as reported by the Rhodium Group uh, and the willingness of U.S. companies there uh, that are already in China, uh, engaged there to remain in China, as as determined by surveys by the American Chamber of Commerce in China, There also has been a degree of strategic economic disengagement between our two countries, and you have written about this, the National Bureau of Asian Affairs. Uh, It's been especially true in the technology sector and the increased scrutiny of Chinese investments into the United States. Uh, How would you see that trend continuing to develop, and how will the response to COVID-19 bear upon that trend?
3: Right. Well, first off, Marty, um, prior – even prior to the Trump administration, um, following on the concentration of supply chains running through China, as unit labor costs went up, uh, some companies were choosing to to ship supply chains to Southeast Asia, to Mexico and other developing markets to achieve lower labor costs. Of course, as uh, time has gone on now, uh, we are seeing what I described as some some level of disengagement between uh, our two economies, which is take uh, and other other uh, market economies are starting to follow suit, including some in Europe. The um, I think I agree with Dr. Lau that what should come out of this, purely from an economic standpoint, is how do you create uh, more reliable. Uh, supply chains, um, resilient supply chains with a level of redundancy to be able to respond to whatever contingencies arise. Um, I mean, even in World War II, the United States uh, did not rely solely upon uh, uh, natural resources and other materials for production within the United States. It sourced things from all over the world. I think, so from an economic standpoint, um, there's a compelling reason to diversify supply chains and to build resiliency, but there's also a national security element to this, and that is um, how do you protect intellectual property, and um, and how do you ensure that you're working with with um, um, bona fide actors within supply chains. I think even companies have a hard time understanding who they're dealing with, uh, what kind of suppliers and so forth, because of the complexity and opacity of supply chains, which then leads to the possibility of uh, security concerns, both economic security concerns for a company, but also emerging national security threats. So I do think there's going to be a level of uh, of disengagement. How this plays out depends on what policies are taken. And, um, I think this is where, uh, as Tim said earlier, and I agree with him, you need a real carefully thought through strategy. And how do we how do we navigate this, in order to not cause further harm? I do think COVID nineteen has focused uh, the American public now on supply chains, whereas before they weren't really, you know, it was sort of an alien concept in many respects. Unless you're in business international business, now I think they understand and they equate supply chains with risk, with shortages, whether it's uh, personal protective equipment, pharmaceuticals, and so forth. I think we need careful policies that don't disrupt the resilience and the reengineering of supply chains and create great costs, but at the same time meet the needs for dealing with future contingencies. Marty, I'd just follow
2: up. This is Tim on uh – Uh, Charles's points here and add a few. Uh, It is not just the United States that is involved in these critical supply chain, national security, um, uh, foreign relations questions, but it's the European Union. For instance, uh, just recently, the European Union, the internal market chief, called for greater domestic capacity in several critical areas. Not only did they highlight in Europe uh, the vulnerability that Europe faces in their supply chains and their reliance overseas, and um, a crisis of the magnitude of the COVID-19 exposed Europe to uh, a host of different sensitivities and vulnerabilities. Uh, they talked about in Europe with their internal report, uh, vulnerability, sustainability, and security of supplies. They also went further and said, uh, and the United States is looking at this, uh, their commission in Europe warned uh, that the EU faces major challenges to secure supplies of raw materials, including lithium, cobalt, and rare earth metals in high-tech goods. So the COVID-19 issue will concentrate and focus our attention on health issues, but the technology slash national security, you know, slash uh, uh, rare earth metals has been something that has been under the surface and percolating for a long time for the U.S. And um, you know, I, I would say that China has made this a priority for a long time, and and they have articulated this in a zero-sum equation saying that China needs to in fact almost dominate these technologies by 2025 and 2030 and announce mm-hmm. the national strategy domestically to
4: uh,
2: have access uh, to these uh, different um, rare earths and lithium uh, Uh, cobalt and other uh, materials to make sure that they not only are self-sufficient but can dominate, you know, the region in the technology area. And the United States has to be, uh, I think, uh, very aware of this now, uh, that they weren't reactive to this before. And, And this will be something that drives U.S. policy more going forward as well, How do we put together supply chains on resiliency, redundancy, national security, uh, and also in a smart way where um, we don't have single sourcing on this in Asia?
1: I I want to uh, throw one little question here because it's implicit in what the gentlemen have been saying. But uh, I think most Americans were quite shocked when they found out – about the nature of these supply chains on uh, healthcare needs. For example, what percentage of pharmaceuticals were manufactured abroad? What percentage of, uh, including generics, what percentage of uh, personal protection equipment was manufactured abroad? How little of it was manufactured in the United States and so forth? But there is an element in this. I mean, it depends in a, in a way. It, it's, it's shocking to tell, as a percentage matter how much is manufactured abroad, and there's also the question of where it's manufactured. What's the source? So, in other words, the angst about supply chains could be an angst regardless just on the basis of percentages, but would it be as great if the source of the supply were, for example, Germany or Israel as opposed to China? In other words, to what degree is the angst about the supply chains driven as much by where it's coming from as the percentage of goods coming from the place
3: yeah, Marty, Charles here. I, um, yeah, it's interesting with domestic, uh, with N95 masks, for instance, um, prior to COVID, domestic manufacturers made most of those for the U.S. market. We weren't really reliant upon overseas imports of N95 masks. So the shortage that we saw with N95 masks was not because of offshoring, uh, particularly it resulted because of a 50-fold demand and sur- uh, surge in demand that uh, for these masks, which the domestic suppliers were not able to keep up with. So getting back to comments uh, that Dr. Lau made uh, and, and Tim made as well, just with that one example, you know, having a stockpile is, is useful, but also having uh, some redundancies built in into supply chains before an emergency are also useful in contrast if you look at the pharmaceutical industry it's a much more diversified supply chain and even with the you know some of the dependencies upon asia and india for active um, uh, ingredients and certain uh, components you really haven't seen the kind of shortages uh, that we saw with ppe so um, even within this this immediacy of covid-19 with healthcare supplies there are lessons to be learned, and that's the key point there. Learn the, real, learn the actual facts of what's happened rather than reacting with policy in a way that's, that's not connected to, re, uh, to realistic circumstances. I
2: yeah. would add,
3: Marty, to this, um, that
2: um, <laughs> it, it does matter where they come from. Uh, will the United States whether it's healthcare whether it's business uh, supply chain strictly on an economic you know cost basis and profitability uh, analysis or based on national security issues it does matter where they come from <clears throat> and as the rhetoric uh, has heightened about china and you know the uh, the uh, the glue that has kept our relationship together on economic terms uh, has deteriorated and there have been more and more um, you know uh, areas of conflict and of rhetoric that are defining the relationship uh, that will uh, cause both the white house and the congress to say that um, you know they need more flexibility uh, on where these supply chains are located, not only in healthcare issues, but uh, on technology and rare earth materials as well. You're going to see, you know, China become a major issue in this fall election at the presidential level that could further harm the relationship and define the supply chain issue and legislation in Congress. Uh, the polling on China uh, I think you've seen probably a 12 or 15 or 20% increase in the American attitudes against China uh, in the in the last 6 or 8 months uh, those numbers are soaring to un, uh, you know unprecedented levels about people's attitudes negative attitudes about China and the United States and Congress can't help but be a filter on that and then finally I think you'll get to this Marty what role will Congress play Will they play a positive, constructive, bipartisan role in uh, their Article One, Section One constitutional authority in trying mm-hmm. to help articulate and pass supply chain, but also other legislation for a more strategic relationship with China, uh, or will they just simply be reactive to the rhetoric in the campaign and make this punitive legislation? and uh something that uh, you know focuses on China uh simply to make the other more general points about uh, Congress and the American people's uh you know whether it's accurate or not uh their their negative views about china uh, reflected in this supply chain legislation that is uh written in congress so You know, is it constructive, positive? Is it restrictive? Uh, uh, Is it um, you know punitive? Uh, Congress has a big role to play, and uh, given the dysfunction up there, I'm not sure it's going to be a real positive role going forward.
1: Neither am I. But I. I, uh, I, uh, Yes. Marty,
2: can I say
4: something? (laughs) Yes, sir. Um, I I think the uh, the question about the supply chains is that we should never forget that it is actually very much price and cost-driven. There is a reason for the chain to be somewhere. Right. It doesn't just happen. And I think we are seeing that many, many of the light manufacturers are actually now moving from China to Vietnam and to Bangladesh. And this is even before the trade war, certainly before the pandemic. And it's going to happen. And I think when... E- very easy way to diversify is to have the importer specify uh, to the, to the uh, whoever in the U.S. specify that uh, I'm going to buy X from country A and Y from country B and maybe even buy from countries A, B, C. I think that is actually something that you can do relatively easily without really having to sort of target any one particular country. And, and I think uh, on, on the uh, protective equipment and so forth, I don't think anybody has foreseen the demand, the world demand for it. And, and there's really not something uh, you can really uh, protect against because we, we don't get this pandemic so often. Okay? The last very serious one, Nineteen eighteen, mm-hmm. right? So, right. so I, I think you, you you want to hatch against a lot of things. I think, but well, this pandemic probably can't, no matter what you do, unless you want to reduce everything domestically. Exactly,
1: Doctor Law. I wanted to ask you something else because uh, when they're talking about um, economic diversification and disengagement decoupling and so forth. Um, I had uh, asked uh, Charles Bustani about statistics uh, that the Rhodium Group had published about American uh, investment in China remaining stable, but that, of course, has not been the case of Chinese foreign direct investment and venture capital investment in the United States. The Rhodium Group also says that those um, uh, investments have dropped very, very severely. I wanted to ask you what is propelling that kind of economic disengagement, and whether or not you think that the trend uh, can or should be contained, and finally uh, whether or not COVID-related tensions will bear upon that trend.
4: Um, I think the uh, I think the strategic disengagement of two economies actually was already underway, uh, you know, even before COVID, part of the trade war, but uh, but I think. Um, there are sort of both positive and negative forces. On the Chinese side, what we really have to to understand is that Chinese economy is no longer export-driven. It has become increasingly focused on its own domestic market, which has been growing by leaps and bounds. It's not... Export is no longer that important to China. Secondly, China is actually trying to move up the value chain. You know, it's been making shoes, garments, stuffed toys. It's now trying to move up the chain. And in so doing, in some sense, it will overlap more and more with the more developed countries, producing cars, producing uh, many other things, um, laptops, and so forth. So, what I'm trying to say is that the Chinese and US economies. Has become more similar, and similar economies compete more and trade less. Okay, if you have an economy exactly like the U.S., you don't trade with them because nothing to be gained. Right? And I think that is actually inevitable. But I think on the other side, I think that the U.S., uh, the Chinese uh, investor, have perceived become not a hospitable place invest. I mean, state-owned enterprises, the Americans have a bias <laughs> against state-owned enterprises. So state-owned enterprises, basically, I would say, they feel like they are not welcome in the U.S. Okay. Now, the private enterprises, they also worry about complications of uh, severe, um, you know, they, they are retreating a little bit, somewhat from venture capital because they were worried of being tagged with stealing technology or stealing trade secrets. Um, I think it would actually take a take a while for that to go back. I think you're right. The Rhodium Group report, quite right, point out that both direct investment from China as well as the investment in venture capital, they are both declined very substantially. Um, but I think I think that is inevitable. What what we see is that the Chinese are also worried that they're worried about their supply chain because like they want to they have been relying on the US to supply, for example, uh well pork and soybeans are okay, but semiconductors. Mm-hmm. So what they perceive is that they have to do something themselves. That there is a Huge risk of being cut off uh, by Intel <laughs> uh, uh, or semiconductors. So, so I think the uh, I think the, uh, uh, the situation is not that good. But on the other hand, I think once you have established successfully a source, you know, both for the U.S. and for the China, if they all have second source, it won't worry us. And maybe mm-hmm. at that and begin to go back to normal.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, I had a, a question here for uh, Tim Romer, and it deals with this. Uh, the legislature to incentivize or direct the diversification onshoring of supply chains appear to contradict the important Republican and Democratic positions. The Republicans, as a norm, tend to oppose interference in the marketplace and directing economic decisions by the government. And the Democrats uh, have uh, very long complained about the high price of prescription drugs uh, causing diversification of the supply chain by government edict has the potential to raise prescription drug prices. My question is, those contradictions might dampen enthusiasm for supply chain legislation unless the political imperatives are too great. How would you evaluate that?
2: Well, first of all, Marty, I would say uh, directly to your question that yeah, you have put your finger on some of the philosophical uh Tendencies and proclivities of the Democratic and the Republican Party, especially uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, both those parties are changing dramatically. Uh, we've seen the impact that the Trump administration has had on you know, trade policy, globalization, populism, uh, uh, China policy, uh, the Democrats uh, with. Uh, uh, Senator Sanders and Vice President Biden and Elizabeth Warren, all being in their 70s as lead presidential candidates, uh, have also, you know, put the party in kind of a, a position of um, where do we go next? Where is the next generation of change after the 2024 election? How do those younger leaders, uh, new leaders, articulate new? Uh, foreign policy and and strategic policy around the world. Um, Both parties have changed uh, so uh, fundamentally from kind of the the basis of your question. Your your question is a very good one, but it's almost as if the left and the right of both parties now have squarely come together – populism, nationalism – uh, the great Midwest, and we're looking at unemployment levels of 14, 15, 18 percent in the United States. Uh, how will we drive in the in, uh, ensuing you know, in, in, in years rebuilding our manufacturing capability, our middle class, and our supply chains so that, as Dr. Lau has said, you know, economics and costs often drive. You know the the decision of where you put your supply chains, but politics do as well. And when we've seen you know the old World War II institutions that the United States helped create begin to crumble, when the WTO is not seen as um, uh, you know a fair negotiator, and the Trump administration almost ridicules them daily uh There are not, you know, the kind of arbiters and, and negotiators out there internationally that we used to have in the past to try to navigate global trade. I think you're going to continue to see, you know, trends, whether we like them or not, in, you know, deglobalization, populism is not going away, nor is nationalism, uh, some of this anti-immigration uh Rhetoric and fever is not going away, sadly. And uh, I, I think that that is going to be the political climate that helps define, you know, economic choices, cost choices, and, you know, national security choices going forward. What do the new parties look like, you know, in the next four to eight years who are the leaders defining what that national security slash trade policy looks like? What are the institutions that replace the World War II institutions, uh, where we can see uh, out of post COVID-19 areas of international cooperation, which are needed? You know, is that in healthcare? Is that in climate? Is that in, uh, trying to, uh, work together across borders, uh, even with China on transnational issues, uh, uh, such as terrorism or, uh, you know, pandemics. So, you know, these are good questions that you ask. And, um, right now there is a big vacuum of reasonable, um, strategic and, uh, you know, bipartisan issues that uh, used to define how the United States worked on these together.
1: It uh, it strikes me, just to respond to you, that, that, of course, this is a major transitional moment, as you say, and this has happened before, right? It Obviously, the uh, Republican Party in the 1930s was very much an isolationist party, but then it became an Eisenhower Party and a Dulles Party and so forth. And uh, and Democrats have had their own changes, and this is a transitional moment. But I want to follow up with one question here, because I think it bears upon the politics of supply chain legislation and related legislation. And it is this question. Uh, Last week, uh, the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, announced the formation of a China task force, on which he would draw members from uh, numerous jurisdictional committees sort of an all-of-Congress or all-of-Congressional-Republican approach on China so that members of different committees would supply input into policy development as opposed to balkanizing their input in committee jurisdictions. He also announced that the original idea was for the group to be bipartisan, but that the Democrats uh, had decided not to participate. Um, How uh, should the Democratic refusal be interpreted? And, do you, and to say that uh, in the context of the 2020 election and 2020 legislation, uh, this uh, indicates a major division between the parties on China.
2: Well, I, I'll jump in since there's a, a vacuum of silence there. Uh, <laughs> I think, Marty, this reflects Sadly, where we have gone uh, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years uh, in Congress. Um, Yeah, it wasn't that long ago that uh, uh, Charles and I and Democrats and Republicans uh, worked together, especially on national security, intelligence, and foreign policy issues. We would, have our debates uh, on domestic issues, Uh, we would fight, uh, uh, agree to disagree, come together, but do it in a respectful way so that, uh, you know, the next battle there was always, uh, you know, the residue of uh, friendship and uh, agreement and camaraderie to come back together and work on a domestic issue. The international issues and national security issues were, at times, you know, highly debated and vociferously argued, but we 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 largely came together uh, uh, on uh, on policy and uh, found you know vast vast swaths of areas to agree on and to you know, principally compromise on for the best sake of the United States of America, rather than have partisan politics define them. Now, the trend that you've just outlined in your question, where there are Democratic or Republican special committees uh, put forward in Congress to define, articulate, and Further, you know, aggravate the partisan differences up there, rather than working these through the committee system. Congress is devised in a brilliant way. You know, Article One, Section One, where the committees are the work of Congress. Charles knows this. Uh, he served, uh, you know, with distinction on a number of committees, including the Ways and Means Committee. And you know, if you're on the Intelligence Committee, the Foreign Relations Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee. Your 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 assignment uh, from the American people and from our great our founders and our Constitution is to work together uh, to the best you can for the interests of the United States in a more and more complicated and sophisticated world. That's what the committees produce through their committee system. They make recommendations to the entire House and Senate. They're supposed to work with the Pentagon and the White House and the other State Department agencies and help, uh, you know, help devise and formulate thoughtful American interests. And uh, when you see the, you know, the the erosion and the devolution and the the evaporation of these things, and there's no agreement on that, uh, uh, and you have partisan special select committees created to have two different views of China or Europe or Africa, we're we're headed for even bigger problems, if that's the case. And finally, i just conclude by saying, when I served as the U.S. ambassador in India for Barack Obama, I wasn't the Democratic ambassador. I wasn't the Republican ambassador. I was the American ambassador there to serve the American interests. And whether it was a Republican delegation coming over, uh, you know, a business, a Republican governor, a Democratic governor, uh, I was there to serve the American interests, and uh, I'll never forget meeting with former President George W. Bush, who came over to make a speech, and I asked him to say a good word when he had a meeting with the prime minister on a uh, big arms commercial sale we were doing at the time. He could have said no. He could have said, look, I'm out. I'm a former president. I don't want to help Barack Obama. Uh, He said, look, you've got it, Tim. I will help America, and uh, I will say something to the prime minister uh, to uh, try to help uh, create better, more jobs in America and get this deal done. Uh, That's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of bipartisanship and cooperation and uh, principled uh, work together that we need to see.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, Tim. I have one more question because we're nearly out of time, about two minutes. I wanted to ask this question to Dr. Lau because um, many proposals are working around Congress. Congress hasn't really been meeting uh, collegially here for a while because of COVID, but now they're beginning to come back together, and that presents the opportunity for joint responses and joint action. These proposals have ranged across a variety of topics. Supply chains has been a big one but so, for example, has the possibility of uh, uh, sanctions legislation or sovereign immunity legislation. Some would say that these things respond to real national security issues. Others would say that they are just principally anti-China posturing. Uh, as China looks at uh, these matters in the Chinese press, for example, and, and, and other, other or general legislation as it is emerging, and is there a distinction between the kinds of legislation, that is, supply chains as against, for example, sovereign immunity legislation?
4: Um, the, uh, I actually think that uh, China fully understands the following that no major country wants to depend solely on another country for the supply of a critical commodity, product, or technology. Understands that? It does not want to be in that position itself. but I also understand that other countries, such as the United States, also does not want to be in that position. So I think that is completely understandable. Um, I, I, I believe that, the, uh, that if there's one reason why the U.S. Has been so negative about Huawei's 5G technology um, is because the U.S. doesn't want to be dependent Solely dependent on a Chinese firm. Now I expect that eventually there will be at least two viable 5G technologies, um, which are interoperable. I hope <laughs> so. But one will be based on the Chinese, firm, and the other will be based on the US system. There will be some competition, but they can interoperate, and competition is not all bad, because we you don't. You don't I mean, we don't really want. 5G system to be monopolized by a single firm, right? So right. if you actually think of a company, in the few of supercomputers, today in 2018, the U.S. had the fastest supercomputer in the world, Summit. There's been a race between the two countries. In 2016 and 17, the, the champion actually, the Chinese computer, and this going back and forth. In the meantime, Know, yes, you know, there's vast improvements computing speeds, supercomputers. So I think we really have to look forward to uh, basically all competition, hopefully friendly competition. But I think we also want both countries to feel comfortable that they are not really at the, at the mercy of the other. hmm right.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. law And now uh, we are... Uh... At the conclusion of time. So, um, before I uh, turn this back to Paul to end the call here, I just want to say thanks again to Ambassador Romer and to Dr. Bustani and Dr. Lau for their participation in this call. Uh, it has been deeply, deeply substantive, and uh, I think it contributes to an elevation of the uh, conversation about this topic of supply chains and more broadly U.S.-China relations, and that is something that is sorely needed. So my gratitude to you all. And, Paul, uh, are you still on the line?
0: I I am. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you to our panelists this morning. We hope you'll all join us on Thursday for FMC's virtual roundtable discussing how COVID-19 has impacted the European Union and the transatlantic relationship. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us, and have a great morning.